0: chapter 20. John chapter 20. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, he never held an office, he never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that we usually associate with greatness. He had no credentials for himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. More than 20 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. A little essay written by a man named James Francis. And I've noticed lately, actually it's been going on for a while, you know, B.C. has become B.C.E., It used to be before Christ. It's now before the common era because so many in the secular realm do not want to acknowledge that history revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. But yet, he is still the central figure of history, and this day in particular that we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord from the grave is the reason that we are here. It's the reason that the church exists. It's the reason that this thing that used to be called the way, Christianity, that the reason that it ever got off the ground in the first place was because Jesus died and then rose again on the third day. I want to speak to you once more this morning about having life in his name. This is the third Sunday that we have used uh, this text And uh, we read from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pause for just a moment of prayer. Father, we ask that you would ask, your, uh, add your blessing to the reading of the Scriptures. We pray that you will come by your Spirit this morning and do what we are not able to do on our own. Father, it's not important that these people hear what I have to say. It's not important that they are affected or impacted by the influence that I have or, or personality or any of those things. It's only important that they hear you and hear your voice. We ask that you will come, that you'll speak in a special and a powerful way, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I said this is the third Sunday that we've spoken from this passage of Scripture, and John's gospel is really a brilliantly written uh work of literature, a literary masterpiece, if you study throughout the Gospel of John from chapter 1 all the way through to the end, chapter 21, you will find that John, in his writing, weaves together at least three different themes. You will find, and we spoke about this uh, two Sundays ago, uh, there are seven I Am statements that Jesus makes where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate or the door of the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd and so on and so forth. There are seven of those. There are also seven I am declarations. These are different from the I am statements. The I am declarations is simply Jesus declaring I am. We find the first of those uh, in the story of the woman at the well, the, uh, the woman of Samaria, where Jesus speaks to that woman who's there drawing water. And uh, at the end of their conversation, she says to Jesus, We know and we believe that, that Messiah will come, the anointed one. And Jesus looks at her and says, the, the, uh, our English versions say, I that speak to you am he. But the original simply says, I am. And in using those words, those two words, I am, and it, it's seven times we find it throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus identifies himself with the God of the Old Testament, the same God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, and Jesus says, I am. That's who I am. I am God come in the flesh. Today we look at one more set of sevens that we find in the Gospel of John that are woven throughout this beautiful uh, literary masterpiece, and they are the seven signs that Jesus performed uh, in order to authenticate his claims and demonstrate who, that, that he is who he claimed to be. We read that word in uh, the text, verse 30 of John chapter 20, uh, Jesus did many other signs. That word signs is sometimes translated as miracles. Miracles. Uh, but it is the Greek word semion, and it simply is a word that means it is, a, it is a means by which God authenticates the men sent by him. A means by which God authenticates the men that are sent by him. And throughout the Gospel of John, we see these seven signs, seven miracles that are worked by Jesus to demonstrate that Jesus is Messiah. He is God come in the flesh. He is the one who has authority over all things and who has authority to forgive sins. We look for just a moment at the first six signs Uh, that uh, Jesus performed, we find the first of these in John chapter 2, where Jesus turns the water into wine. You may remember this story, Jesus is at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and uh, Jesus' mother is also present at this wedding, and uh, partway through, they ran into a problem, they ran out of wine. And Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they're, they're, they're out of wine. Now, in our cultural context that we live in today, it may not mean as much uh, to us to say we've run out of something and just, we would just say, that's okay, we'll, just, we'll drink something else, we'll get, give them something else to drink. But in that day and age, the, the host of that event had a, had a very big responsibility, and to run out of something that was as crucial uh, as wine was to them, uh, it would be a great uh, a reflection, a terribly great reflection. Let me say that again, I'm saying it backwards. It would be a greatly terrible perception. Uh, it would cast that family in a negative light in front of their whole community in town. And it was, a, it was a real problem. Jesus kind of discusses this a little with his mother, and, and uh, for whatever reason, his mother had complete confidence in him, and she said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. And the scripture says there were six stone water jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification. So these are six stone, not jars like we think of jars, but these were, these were probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus gave the instruction to fill all of those with water. And they were all filled with water. And then he gave instructions to the, to the master of the feast, or rather to the servants, to draw out of those large containers of water, draw out a, a pitcher full, and take to the master of the feast. And verse 9 of John chapter 2 says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now notice especially verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this is the first of, of seven signs, and these, each one of these signs are marked by one of two things, either people believing in him or controversy. Let's move on quickly to the second. The second sign is found in John chapter 4, where Jesus heals an official's son. We look at verse 46 uh, through 54. Interestingly enough, it takes place in the same location, also in Cana, in Galilee. And uh, an official, a governing official, came to Jesus and asked him to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, "'Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe.'" The official said to him, "'Sir, come down before my child dies.'" Jesus simply said to him, go your way, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him the hour. It's interesting that he thought to do this. He asked him the hour at which his son began to recover. And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that it was the very same hour that Jesus had said, go your way, your son will live. Again, verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So the first two signs are clearly identified by John in the writing of his gospel. These are signs that Jesus has performed in order to authenticate his claim to be God come in the flesh and to go to the cross and take sin upon himself, take, uh, or rather to condemn sin in his death on the cross so that we might be forgiven. Now John doesn't continue to identify every sign as such. He's just kind of trusting that we will follow along and keep count. The third sign is kind of where controversy begins. It's the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. We read about that in John chapter five. Uh, there's a man that had lain for quite a while at the pool of Bethesda, and there was a there was a uh, you could call it a, a legend or a, or a. Uh, A belief about the pool at Bethesda that on occasion uh, an angel would come and stir or trouble the waters. And the people there believed that the first one in to that pool after the waters had been stirred by the angel would be healed of whatever infirmity they had. And uh, you can imagine what the pool of Bethesda must have been like. I used to work at a hospital named Bethesda Hospital. And in the cafeteria, they had a mural beautifully painted uh, of the pool of Bethesda. And it was painted, you know, very, very beautifully, very beautifully done. but, But I don't imagine that the pool of Bethesda was really a very pleasant place to be. It was, it was a place full of, of the sick and afflicted, and uh, so not, not very pleasant. And Jesus and his disciples are there in this setting, and, and they see this man, and Jesus speaks to him and, and says, do you wish to be made well? Would you like to be made whole? And the sick man answered him, and I don't know about you, but I, I tend to... I tend to put tone of voice into words when I read them and I picture things happening in my mind and and I can almost hear the whine in the man's voice as he says to Jesus, uh, basically of course I want to be healed but I have nobody to help me get into the water so that when the angel comes and stirs the water, somebody else always gets in ahead of me and so there's nobody to help me and I can't be healed. But Jesus said to him simply, "'Get up, take up your bed, and walk.'" And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Now in this story, it doesn't say anything about people believing in him necessarily, but it does tell us about the controversy that began surrounding Jesus. Because the next verse says that it was on the Sabbath day. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, "'It is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed.'" But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. I guess he thought if he has power and authority to heal my lame and broken and and sick body, then it's probably okay for me to listen to him when he tells me, take up your bed and walk. The fourth sign is the feeding of the 5,000. Just quickly, we'll, we'll mention the first part. You know, Jesus is teaching the people. There's so many gathered. The Bible says 5,000 men, and there's speculation that if, if it's just the men that are counted, that it could have been a crowd much larger than 5,000 people. But whatever the case, the, the disciples come to Jesus and say, These people are hungry. Um, Jesus says, we can't, we can't send them away because it's too far for them to go on an empty stomach. They'll pass out on their way home. You give them something to eat. And the disciples said, but Lord, we don't have anything but a little boy's lunch. A few loaves of fish, which were not loaves, or a few loaves of fish. A few loaves of bread. Fish loaf. I'm not sure if that'd be good. I don't think that'd be very good. Meat loaf is okay, but okay. Um, A few loaves of Bread. And they were not loaves of bread like you and I think of when we think of loaves of bread. These were little round, maybe like a pancake and a few pieces of fish. And Jesus said, you tell the people to sit down, and he blessed the bread. He blessed that meal and gave it to the disciples and told them to distribute to all of those that were present. And everybody was fed, nobody went home hungry, and there were 12 baskets full left over. But what's interesting about this story is that the people kind of sort of believed in him, but not exactly in the way that Jesus was looking for them to believe in him. Verse 14 of Matthew 6 says, "...when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, "'This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world.'" Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And who wouldn't want a king or a president or a political leader of some kind who can turn water into wine and who can take bread and fish and multiply it and feed thousands? No more hunger crisis, right? would be a provision for everything that we need. And so that's what these people thought. They're coming to make Jesus king. But if we look on down to verse 22, Jesus, Jesus slips away from them, but then they come seeking him. They come looking for Jesus, and they found him on the other side of the sea. Jesus had, had escaped temporarily. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And the the controversy grows. uh, Jesus tells them, you know, you're interested in me, but not, not for really who I am. Verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And we begin coming to this idea of what does it mean to believe in Jesus? I think one thing is clear from this story is that it is something more than just an intellectual assent to believe in Jesus. There's so many people in this world today that will have an intellectual consent to say, well, I believe that he was a real person, but he was probably just a good moral teacher, maybe even a prophet, but not God in flesh, not the Savior of the world. Many people very well-meaning, will profess to put their trust in Christ, but they, like the people that received their fill of the loaves, are interested in Jesus for their own agenda. In other words, they don't want Jesus for Jesus' sake. They want Jesus for their own sake, for what He can do for them. Moving on. The next sign is the healing of the man born blind in John chapter 9. This is where the disciples come to Jesus and ask him a question that, that has troubled people and still troubles people to this day. They say, Lord, whose sin is responsible for this man being born blind? Did his parents sin or did this man sin? Why, is, why was he born blind? And Jesus said, "Oh, it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with that, but that the glory of God may be revealed in him." And Jesus bent down and spit in the dirt and made mud, and used that mud and anointed the man's eyes, and then sent him to wash in the pool of Siloam. And the Bible says, "So he went and washed and came back seeing." Again, controversy is growing. The, the Pharisees saw, the people, the people around saw the, the man who had been born blind. And they said, isn't this the guy that used to be blind? And some said, no, it's not really him, but it's just somebody that looks like him. And others said, no, it is the man that was born blind. And until finally the man said, yeah, I am the man that was born blind. And they said, How then were your eyes opened? And he answered, verse 11, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said, Go to, the, to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Verse 13, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind, because it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and anointed the man's eyes. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to skip down because I'm running short on time verse verse 35 uh let's let's look at verse 30 down through verse 35 of John chapter 9 the the Pharisees are questioning this man that was born blind and they say we know that this man is not a man of God because otherwise he wouldn't be doing these things on the sabbath and the man who was healed who had had his eyes opened could not believe this and um they he said to the pharisees this is an amazing thing you do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes we know that god does not listen to sinners but if anyone is a worshiper of god and does his will god listens to him never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind if this man were not from god he could do nothing they answered him, the Pharisees answered him and said, You are born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out of the synagogue. They, uh, they excommunicated him. Verse 35 is very interesting. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He said, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and worshipped him. Again, the sixth sign is the raising of Lazarus, found in John chapter 11. And this was Jesus' friend. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and Lazarus got sick, and Mary and Martha sent for Jesus and said, Jesus, come, this one that you love is, is sick, and we're afraid he's about to die. Would you please come and heal him? And Jesus delays his coming until Lazarus actually died, and then Jesus went. And Mary and Martha both to the Lord Jesus, oh, if only you had been here. Our brother had not died. And there in that part of the story is another of the I am statements of Jesus, where Jesus said to them, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And they go to the graveyard, and Jesus instructs them to roll away the stone that was covering over that that tomb, that cave-like entrance where Lazarus' body was raised. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out bound, hand and foot, in the grave clothes, and Jesus said, release him and let him go. And in John chapter 11, verse 45, we read where it says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs, many works that seem to authenticate that he is really from God. And what are we going to do about this guy? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And so from that day on, verse 53, they made plans to put Jesus to death. You see, through all that Jesus did, through all of these signs, people just... Many persisted in their unbelief. There were those who believed because they couldn't deny that he came from God, but they persisted in their unbelief. John chapter 12, verse 27, we read an interesting account about another way that Jesus' person and work was authenticated. Verse 27, Jesus says, "'Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour.'" But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now listen to this. The scripture says, Then a voice came from heaven, saying, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard the voice said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. In other words, God is doing all that he can to help people believe in Jesus. Not just for their own sake, but for Jesus' sake. A voice from heaven was given. There was an appeal to believe, but the result was that the people persisted in their unbelief. When Jesus had said these things, again, this is John chapter 12, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. In spite of all the signs, in spite of all the miracles, I have a, I have a good friend who um, does not really believe in Jesus. And we've discussed this issue about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And he's told me before, you know, why couldn't God just write it in the sky? Or do some kind of amazing, powerful miracle to to leave it beyond all doubt that God is real and that Jesus is his son and that we ought to believe in. Why doesn't God do that? To which I kind of want to say, God has done that. And the people still did not then believe in him, nor do they believe in him now. Again, another appeal to believe, John chapter 14 and verse 11. And this kind of sums up the whole idea of the signs and the miracle working power of Jesus. Jesus is talking to his disciples. They're they're having a conversation and and he says to them, uh, if you've seen me, you know the Father. In verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. on account of the works themselves. In other words, he's saying, if you're not going to believe me because of the words, the teaching that I'm giving you, then at least look at the works that I have done, the signs that I have performed, and believe me on that basis. But the people persisted in their unbelief. And so we come to the seventh sign. Now, the seventh sign is... Identified very early in the Gospel of John. It's identified in John chapter 2 and verse 18. And I don't know if you see this or not, but, I, but again, I can't help but see the beauty of the tapestry that John has woven together to construct his book, uh, the, the Gospel, the story of Jesus. John chapter 2, verse 18 the Jews said to Jesus, Now, remember, this was after Jesus had gone in and cleansed the temple. He'd turned over the tables of the money changers and driven them out and said, Get out of here. You've made my father's house into a den of thieves. And the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign? What is the the authenticating work that you can do to demonstrate, to prove to us that you have the authority to do this? So Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken to them. Isn't that powerful? John chapter two, long before all of this happened, Jesus told him that it was gonna happen. Then we read, beginning in John chapter 19, about the death of Jesus. And I couldn't resist but to, to, to quote from you from to quote to you from a wonderful black Baptist preacher of years gone by who, who gave us this beautiful writing it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And he wrote it this way It's Friday. Jesus is beaten, mocked, and spit upon, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The Roman soldiers are flogging our Lord with a leather scourge that has bits of bones and glass and metal, tearing at his flesh. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The Son of Man stands firm as they press the crown of thorns down into his brow. It's Friday. See him walking to Calvary, the blood dripping from his body, from his face. See the cross crashing down on his back as he stumbles beneath the load. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. See those Roman soldiers driving the nails into the feet and the hands of the Lord Jesus. Hear my Jesus cry, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, Jesus is hanging on the cross, bloody and dying, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the sky grows dark, the earth begins to tremble, and he who knew no sin became sin for us. Holy God will not abide with sin, pours out his wrath on that perfect sacrificial lamb who cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, what a horrible cry. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Heaven is weeping and hell is partying. But that's because it's Friday and they don't know that Sunday's coming. Now it's Sunday, and just about dawn on the first day of the week, there was a great earthquake. But that wasn't the only thing shaking, because now it's Sunday, and the angel of the Lord is coming down out of heaven and rolling the stone away from the door of the tomb. Yes, it's Sunday and the angel of the Lord is sitting on that stone and the guards posted at the tomb to keep the body from disappearing were shaking in their boots because it's Sunday and the lamb that was silent before the slaughter is now the resurrected lion of the tribe of Judah for he is not here. He is risen as he said. As we read in the Gospel of John following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are a couple of instances where we see that people encountered the risen Christ and believed in him chapter 20 and verse 8 the first to see Jesus the first to go and examine the the empty tomb you remember that the ladies had reported that the tomb that the that the tomb had been opened up and so chapter 20 verse 2 says that Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved now this is most likely John the writer of this gospel they said to them the, the Mary Magdalene said to them they have taken the lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him so peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb both of them running together but the other disciple outran peter the other disciple that's the one who's probably John He saw and believed. Verse 16 through 18, we read about Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene. She did not recognize Jesus, but thought him to be the gardener. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Who are you seeking? Mary said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where have you, you have laid him, and I will take the body. And Jesus said, to her, Mary. She turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She believed. One of the most interesting that we find is from verses 24 through 29, the one that we call Doubting Thomas. I'm going to say this as kindly as I know how. You miss something when you don't come to church. And Thomas missed church when Jesus showed up the first time. The other disciples were there, the other ten, except for Thomas. And Jesus showed up, and Thomas wasn't there. A few days later, they said to him, we, we have seen the Lord, he's appeared to us. And Thomas said, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and in his feet, and put my hand inside that wound in his side where they pierced him, I will not believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again together, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He believed. You see, friends, this morning, Jesus is more than a myth. He's more than a legend. If I could quote to you for just a moment from C.S. Lewis, who wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. He said this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis went on to write, That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I don't know where you all are on your journey of faith. There may be some here who would be quick to say, I I don't believe at all I do think it's just it's just stories that have grown up and developed over time but friends I want to invite you this morning to consider the story of Jesus and how it has been recorded for us and left to us from history and challenge you to believe lay aside your preconceptions lay aside what you uh, what you hope Jesus will do for you And come to him willing for him to be Lord and master of your life. You see, friends, in his seven I am statements, Jesus demonstrated his sufficiency for our needs. Jesus is everything that this world needs. He is everything that you need. He said, I am the bread of life. You can come to me and eat and you will never go hungry. I am the water you can drink and never thirst again. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. It is through Jesus that we come into right relationship with God. He is the good shepherd. He is the one who leaves the ninety and nine in the fold and goes out seeking and searching for the one who is lost. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Jesus. In his I am statements, he declared his sufficiency for our needs. In his I am declarations, he identified himself as our redeeming Savior. God come in the flesh to then go to the cross and condemn sin in the flesh so that we who are in the flesh might have our sins forgiven and walk free of condemnation. In the seven signs that we talked about this morning, he demonstrated the authentication of his claims. All of these things demonstrate that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. You say, yeah, but Pastor How do you know that you can trust this book? If you come back tonight, we may talk a little bit about that tonight. But for right now, I just want to tell you, God isn't asking anybody to take a leap in the dark. God isn't isn't calling on anyone to make a blind step of faith. But He gives us reason to believe. And He calls us to believe. And then, as some of you know, and some of you are perhaps yet to find out, he also gives us time to believe. He was so patient with Thomas. He didn't berate Thomas. But simply when he saw him, he said, Here I am, Thomas. Check me out for yourself. And don't disbelieve, but believe. God has been kind and patient with me he's given me time to believe he's been kind and patient to many of you as well let me invite you to look to the savior of calvary the one who died and the one who rose again he is everything that you need let's stand together